I think it's more just the part of the story is the institutionalization of the asset class and the journey we've been on and yeah. how it's gone from, you know, we've had real estate investors personally to infrastructure to institutional real estate people, obviously with Miracle going public. So I think that walk's critical, especially in the story of, I mean, you, you kind of mentioned it, but real estate, there was the four food groups, right? It was office, retail, I forget what they are these days, but anyway, there was always- Multi-family. A, yeah, multi-industrial. Multi-industrial, right? And then now there's, you know, either sub-segments or 20 other things. And I think right. people, real estate investors, I mean, that's part of the story. They were forced to- you know, become intelligent. And historically, everyone just viewed real estate as assets. I own these five buildings. The idea of having a company that is self-sustaining, I guess they call it, plat, you know, Blackstone yep. called it platforms. But, you know, my joke I normally make is in the normal world, we call these companies and they are functioning organizations and they hire, retain, right. develop talent. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is a conversation with Kevin Marchetti, the co-founder and co-CEO of Baygrove, a real estate private equity firm based here in the Bay Area that owns Lineage Logistics, the world's largest owner-operator of cold storage facilities and logistics services, helping to store, move, and process frozen and perishable food worldwide. I first met Kevin about 12 years ago in his office in San Francisco when he and his partner at Baygrove, Adam Forst, had just acquired their first properties and were just then moving up the food chain of capital to pursue a consolidation strategy in the cold storage warehouse business. Kevin will tell the story, but Baygrove has been one of the most prolific users of capital in the real estate business during that time frame, raising over $7 billion and amassing a portfolio of 450 properties in 20 countries and building a world-class, innovative operating company, Lineage, along the way. It's the story we hear again and again in our business. Kevin built a company in a niche of real estate dominated by smaller family businesses ripe for consolidation, raising huge amounts of capital, diving deep into the substance of an industry, in this case, the perishable food industry, and creating a world-class, innovative, and institutional operating company. I think this is a story of real estate industry over the past 25 years, really institutionalizing an asset class. And you kind of think it's been done, and then along comes someone like Kevin finding a new niche, ripe, pun intended, in which to build an industry-changing business. That's today's conversation. We get to bite down on food granulars in his business, like the life cycle of a strawberry, matching the berry up with peanut butter, getting strawberries into uncrustables, using frozen strawberries to actually power the grid, his attending the upcoming global chicken conference, dare we compare that to a ULI fall meeting, probably better in ICSC, and his experience as the business manager for the Duke basketball team under Coach K. Really cool conversation. We keep exploring the different niche sectors and the leaders who've created great operating businesses to complement their roll-up of real estate assets. Check out our conversations with Joe Margolis and Ken Woolley, who've built extra space management into the industry leader in self-storage, and who, like Kevin, I first met when they had a handful of properties and are now industry dominant. Bill Stein from Digital Realty on the data center side, again, someone I got to watch go from startup to industry leader. John McLaren from Sun Communities and Manufactured Housing, Bill Ballas from American Campus Communities, and Paul Smithers from Innovative Industrial Properties on Cannabis, a business we're going to have to return to again on the show. Another interesting dynamic of the niche property types is that the expertise to lead these businesses is less about real estate expertise than it is to be able to work strategically with a client base, again, far different than in the main food groups, this time, no pun intended, in real estate. And that's one of the strengths for me at doing search at a firm like ZRG, which covers all sectors of the economy so that we can bring together that broader thinking and expertise and connections than just my real estate mindset to our clients. That's really critical as real estate reaches into these non-traditional real estate asset classes. This is yet another of those episodes to share with a friend, since indeed most everyone will appreciate both the life cycle of the strawberry and the business that Kevin and his team has built. If you like the show and have not, please subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you have five minutes, please rate us. 
If you have comments or questions or interested in partnering with ZRG on a human capital endeavor, please email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the show. Kevin Marchetti, I'm in your office here in downtown San Francisco. Welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you. And I'm remembering 10 or 12 years ago, you and I sat in an office about two blocks from here, and you gave me a thesis of what you were about to do. Maybe you'd bought one cold storage warehouse. I'm not sure. And now you have... 450 warehouses in 85 million square feet in 20 countries with over 5 billion of avenue revenue, annual revenue, and you're the biggest cold storage player by a factor of two or three. What a fascinating story over those 10 or 12 years. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It's been a uh, wild run and a lot of fun. I think you're right. When we started out, we may have had two or three different buildings in Seattle and uh, south georgia and uh you know now like i said we've got 450 around the world so it's been it's been quite a run when we started my colleague adam and i um you know bought a warehouse in seattle and we were fortunate to spend the first year learning the business by spending time in the warehouse and learning the industry and um, our industry is a global cold chain alliance and it's a global industry and you know a lot of the founders of these great companies we got to know and took us under their wing and they were trying to figure out, you know, they had one to five warehouses in a region of the country, and they were trying to figure out their long-term planning. And so as we embarked on this industry consolidation, we saw an opportunity. At the time, there was Americold. They were still, at this point, Vernado and Crescent uh, were still minor partners, but Yukaipa had taken over uh, for the most part. The business had attempted to go public, and there was a demand to have another kind of number two player primarily in the U.S., and so we thought, you know what, if we can get a couple of these family companies over time, maybe 10, 15 years, we could build a nice portfolio, maybe, you know, maybe 20 million square feet, maybe, a, you know, U.S. and a couple okay. other countries. And it's uh, obviously turned into a lot more. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. And I'm assuming when you thought you might build a portfolio of 20 million square feet or whatever, you're thinking you're going to own real estate of that size and of that number of assets and now you have a company and not real estate, or you have real estate that becomes a company, which is a totally different thing. Yes, it's kind of funny. Adam and I came out of a more traditional operating company world, and everyone kind of inherently understands real estate, but really, you know, the investor side of it is a different animal. And I think the fascinating part for us was misunderstanding. We were buying these companies. We, our industry historically owns and operates. So I, I like to explain for simplicity, it's ProLodge and XBO together. So you own the warehouse and you operate the forklifts. What's XPO? XPO uh, is one of the larger kind of global logistics players. So it was kind of a well-known roll-up consolidation. But, you know, you could take Excel, any any of these Mm -hmm. large, DHL, any of these large logistics companies. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you own the real estate and operate it is unique. And so I think when we saw that, you were able to buy businesses for, for EBITDA multiples and separate the real estate out. So let's talk about how this got started as a concept for you. Because when I saw you, I'd heard of cold storage. I knew that Fornado and Crescent were in it as a sideline, and sidelines don't work in REITs anymore, so that was starting <laughs> to change. But anyhow, so you got the concept. What brought you to the concept of this space in the first place? Yeah, so my partner and I had founded Baygrove, and our thesis was to create long-term platforms. And when I had worked at Ukipe, I had, I had spent a little bit of time on the Americold investment. And so the then CEO and a couple board members had said, hey, this is now fall of 08. Lehman has just melted down. Barrett already melted. And they're like, there was a great asset. We were going to, originally it was tied up for 30 million bucks, seller loss financing given the world. We had it tied up for 20, but we have another large deal. They were working on acquiring number two player. And their comment was, why don't you go buy this? And, you know, the Seattle market's kind of fragmented and maybe consolidate. And who knows, five years down the road, maybe we'll buy that from you. And so it was a single asset. And for real estate people, they'll get a kick. It was a, a ground leased asset with the Port of Seattle. It was on a super fun cleanup site on the Duwamish River. It was actually built on Boeing's original headquarters with a uh-huh. little red barn. We had a union and we had to raise debt and equity. We had to, So we had five negotiations going on. The port, the union, our debt, equity, uh, and obviously a seller. And we had to get that done in about eight weeks in 2008. So we learned a lot. Uh, and if you can get something done then, you can get something done anytime. 2008, so, yeah, with all of that? With all that. And we're going to 
drill down on all of this, but just a, a global question is, when did it occur to you that you weren't creating a collection of assets, that you were going to create a company that was in the middle of this industry? So I think the interesting part, and I, I kind of ask everyone, because a lot of people reference the Americold, Vernado Crescent. Obviously, at the time, Vernado and Crescent were two of the greatest real estate investors. I and mean, that right. was at the peak of their power with you know, Steve Roth, Mike Fasatelli, John Goff, Jerry Crenshaw. So everyone's like, this doesn't make sense. And our core thesis was, do people need to eat food? Yes. <laughs> do they need to store food? Yes. So this is an asset class that needed to exist. So kind of what was wrong? And I think if you actually look at where industrial real estate was in the late 90s, early, it wasn't exactly the hottest asset right. class. And so what really happened was supply chains became more complicated. Warehouses and industrial land became more expensive. Warehouses became more valuable. And it became a more core asset that people had to have. And in the case of um, cold storage or frozen food warehouses, most food companies, I, I kind of say similar to data centers, it's expensive and complicated to own. And so the Cargills, Unilever, Nestle, any large food company, and, and by the way, if it's half full, unlike a dry warehouse, there's no additional cost per se, but a cold storage, mm -hmm. now you have to keep it cold also. Mm -hmm. So it's actually more inefficient to have it half empty. So all that stuff makes it a great asset to outsource, like data centers. And so you take those variables and all that came together to create the right time to build a number two player and to help institutionalize an asset class. Understood. So we're going to get into this and talk more yep. about that part. Talk about the structure of your company. And you're with Baygrove, which is a holding company where you were going to do multiple verticals, but maybe we'll talk about more later on. But you did this. There's a CEO of the company. The company structure is a REIT, but you're private equity. How does all that work and why is it structured this way? Great question. So you are correct. When we formed Baygrove, I think the one thing we told our original call it 30 investors would we, we'd be opportunistic and so that could have we and we thought opportunistic meant you know investing 9.9 percent .9 in a bank and owning a cold storage company and maybe uh you know making another growth equity but having multiple platforms mm -hmm. so we've stayed true to our focus of being opportunistic and it's been opportunistic in one asset class and i think what happened was after we made the first two to three investments in cold storage I went on the board of the industry and my partner Adam and I realized that we're trying to do all these other deals, but there's 40 deals that are sitting in front of us. So why stray a field where we've actually built a reputation and an intellectual capital where we were actually getting proprietary deals, which, you know, that's kind of, I'd argue in almost any industry, right. that's the most valuable thing. When you said you went on the board of the industry, what's that mean? Uh, so the, our industry, it's the Global Cold Chain Alliance. There's the IARW, which is the International uh, Association of Refrigerated Warehouses, and the WFLO, World <laughs> Food Logistics Organization. Okay. And so pretty much you get all the families who own all these companies together twice a year. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, you have your M&A <laughs> environment. I mean, everyone's laughed since because probably two-thirds of those are now uh, companies we've acquired or the families have been investors in lineage. Mm -hmm. But it was pretty amazing to be in a room twice a year with you know target-rich environment um, of friends and partners who honestly helped mentor us through the industry. Mm -hmm. And as they helped mentor us and grow and they saw that we were actually committed to the industry and just not your traditional financial players, they really developed a respect for us and realized we took care of their employees, we took care of their assets, the communities they were involved with. And when it came to doing a deal, they just picked up the phone and called us. Right. And when you're discovering this business and then you're discovering family that had a bunch of assets, were they operating companies anywhere near what your operating companies become? Did they know it was more than real estate and were they operating it that way at that point in time? And could they have because technology is different and everything else? Yeah. The answer I'd say 95% was no. Last kind of five years, I'd say that's evolved once really, especially once Americold went public. Uh -huh. And some more larger institutional people entered their space. You know, we had Blackstone, uh, Oak Tree. We had some of these other funds came in. And then we had some real estate players. But I think when I kind of remind everyone, I tell a great story. There was a wonderful entrepreneur. And, you know, they thought of their, they, everyone thought about, you know, I have employees, I run a business. And in the, I'd say in most of America, running a company is a cool thing. I'm the CEO, I have a business. 
So they thought, and that is where they spent 80% of their time. The rent collecting portion of a business is pretty easy. You collect a rent check, I pay you. So don't people don't think about that. But right. the managing food and the forklift drivers, that's complicated. So they always thought about that, even though 80 to 90% of the value of their company was in the real estate. Mm -hmm. The other issue was, if you built a building in 1990 in the Inland Empires, or 80s, or even early 2000s, you know, you built it, you depreciated it, and you didn't really think about the long term. It didn't appreciate that much. Right. Well, fast forward, you know, the last 15, 20 years, Inland Empire real estate is appreciated a massive amount. Right. And so people didn't think about themselves as owning real estate. They thought that as an asset to run their business. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's flipped itself. Uh, if you look at you know a lot of companies, I mean, even supermarkets, retailers, all these companies, I mean, there's more value in the real estate than actually the operations. Yeah, and also, actually it's funny, where I thought you were about to go was this, if you build a, a refrigerated warehouse in the 80s or 90s in the Inland Empire, I'm also thinking that technology would have leapfrog in terms of efficiency in that warehouse, and you better keep up with just the refrigeration part of technology, maybe solar panels, let alone logistics. Yeah, I would tell you, it's funny, we have some warehouses, not many anymore, but some, you know, given you have a portfolio of 450 that are 100 years old, every warehouse kind of can serve its own purpose. And, I, you know, I remind people, everyone, of course, loves to buy the beautiful trophy asset per se. <laughs> but as most real estate people know, sometimes it's that older gem that you buy for 10% of the price that can make more money. So you're correct, the newer assets are a lot more efficient. There's, um, especially for the kind of modern day business, but you can buy, you know, I'd say assets that are 10, 20, even 30 years old, they're still extremely efficient, serve a purpose. And if you put the right type of business or product in there, they can be immensely profitable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we're bouncing around still in the introductory section before we think about what the global food chain looks like. But talk about capital. Talk about your business. You've mentioned data center several times. We've mentioned industrial several times. How does it distinguish itself for real estate investors to be in with you versus those other businesses? Is there a premium for cold storage like there is for data centers versus Warehouse, just to think that sure. through a little bit. So I think the intellectual debate, and we had actually, my partner Adam and I, we met uh, with John Gray uh -huh. at Blackstone about seven or eight years ago. And uh, I'll tie it back to earlier comment. His comment is, I, in, intellectually, I love the idea of cold storage, but Iowa real estate doesn't really get me excited. Southern California does. And he's like, if I were you guys, I would really focus on building in core industrial markets, which obviously was Blackstone's DC in the industrial space be the top 20 MSAs mm -hmm. in globally similar uh, idea. Mm -hmm. So that really resonated with Adam and I. And at the time, you could buy a company in Iowa or in Southern California for roughly the same operating company multiple. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, you now own real estate in Vernon versus Iowa. I would tell you from the business standpoint, you need both Iowa and SoCal operations because there's a lot of chicken, pork, beef, other in stuff. Iowa. In Iowa, and it's great, and it feeds the rest of your global network. But from our standpoint, we really focus on those core industrial markets. So if you look at Southern California, New York, New Jersey, Miami, you know, the Bay Area, the Seattle, the best industrial markets, we have amazing market share and an amazing network of assets. And so that was really uh, a differentiated point in our thesis to create kind of a great business. And Another question, because you mentioned this a few minutes ago, I just want to imagine this. You go to the industry meetings, you meet these families that own assets, and they take you under their wing. And I'm imagining they own five, eight, ten properties, and they have a business. What does that look like, and are these people about to retire? Are they people who need to capitalize, monetize, and bring you in, and that's an easier play for succession planning and all that? So, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, it's a range of just great, I call it, iconic American entrepreneurs. Right. Most of these people, as you mentioned, had you know one to eight warehouses. They were in uh, Richmond, Virginia. They were in the Northwest. They were in Southern. And so, I, I, once again, use an analogy, kind of similar to the car dealer business, right? The, right. They all knew each other. They all kind of respected. If you were you know, Unilever and you needed to distribute you know, Dryer's ice cream uh, or Nestle uh, around the country, you would use six of these players, one in Southern California, one in Atlanta, maybe one of them crossed two markets. Right. And so they would get together. They were you know, tended to be some were first generation, but a lot of were second, third industry generation. They knew each other, right. and I think candidly, they respected the fact that we had learned the industry and cared about the industry and all the nuance of the industry, which is a phenomenal industry. 
but they also realized we had the financial sophistication. And most of these entrepreneurs, every three to five years would double down, lever up, expand the building, buy another asset, do something else. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were there in the 60s and 70s, and the question was, do my children want to run the company? Do I even want them to run the company? Or is this industry consolidating so quickly? Technology is really changing. I mean, just the tech, you know, everyone used to run a warehouse with a clipboard and right. that stuff with scanners and warehouse management systems and just automation, all this technology evolution. And then the regulatory, you know, they were the head of sales, operations, IT, technology, and that that was quickly changing. And so I think a lot of them said, and we created a solution lineage. I think one of the cool things, that stands for the lineage of our family-owned companies. Uh-huh. So we were early on in our M&A. We'd bought five companies, and we said, do we want to be a collection of brands like Procter & Gamble uh-huh. and have Seafreeze, City Ice, Richmond Cold Storage, or create a real company in the name? And so we came up with lineage to respect the heritage of mm-hmm. the family-owned companies. We have our Lineage Shield, which stands for each of those companies. Uh, it's grown a lot more. Right. And that really, I think, created something that these families could be proud of. They were selling their business. Mm-hmm. I would say 90% of rolled equity and actually uh, stayed involved in some capacity as an advisor, as a, just an investor, or just a wise sage. Mm-hmm. And the cool part is I think we have now 17 former industry chairmen who are involved and 10 zero crafts, which is the hall of fame for cold storage. So they are either investors or partners in the business in some form. Oh, that's a wonderful story. It's funny. I'm smiling and I'm also thinking of other sectors in real estate. I'm thinking of self storage. The data centers are too new for that. Yep. But you keep going across the industry. Manufactured housing has much the same experience as well. And those are all industries where there's, we call them mom and pops, but these are bigger mom and pops in your world. Yep. But they're, they have to pass the baton. Yep. In an increasingly sophisticated business. So if they're not going to grow to become like you, they better become part of you. And I think if you look at their business, most of these operators develop a niche industry expertise. You know, in Seattle, it was primarily seafood. In the Southeast, it mm-hmm. was poultry, pecans, and blueberries. And they all developed these niches. Right. And they had what they ended up with, the great thing was they knew an industry. The bad thing was they had a commodity concentration and a customer concentration. So while, as we like to say, no one loses weight in a bad economy. I mean, food is extremely stable across calorie consumption. But if you're in a very small region or you have a customer who has 40%, you know, right. and they know it, they can once in a while wave uh, a little pressure. So we were able to create a diverse platform. So we were, were diverse by customer, commodity, and region. So it's a God forbid there's ever a drought or some regional event. It doesn't affect the broader company and likely... You know, if you see with um, protein consumption, if beef's down, pork and poultry are up. And so where we may hurt one place, we're benefiting somewhere else or we're importing more of that protein or exporting more. So Uh that's the beauty of being diversified in food. Last question before we talk about the global food chain, which I'm curious about, is over this period of time, as you've grown to the size and scale that you are, you've raised a lot of money. Maybe get some ballpark numbers so we get a sense of this and then maybe compare (laughs) it to others in real estate if you're able. Sure. So I think we are in a capital intensive business. We've grown probably 80% of our growth, 70, 80% historically was through M&A. But we actually spend a lot of money, you know, probably close to a billion dollars a year now building, expanding assets and investing in technology. So in the, since 2020, I think we've raised, depending on what set of data, the third most capital for a public or private REITs, close to $7 billion. I think Alexandria and realty income are the only two who've raised more capital. And amongst private companies, even in the technology world, we've actually raised more capital than SpaceX. I think it's we're third and fourth. So it's it's been a ton of equity capital. And we've also you know, been one of the um, largest issues of CMBS. We have our uh, infamous ICE transactions. And so we've done, you know, four large single borrowers, CMBSs. So we've been act- we've definitely been an active capital user. And then we have great bank partners who've been huge sponsors too. And the way you structure that is through the holding company while the uh, lineage is structured as a REIT itself that holds the assets? Correct. And do you, kind of like Blackstone with their operating companies, do you do the capital decisions and allocation stuff and they kind of run this all? How does that yeah. synergy work? No, it's a, it's a great question. We brought in a phenomenal CEO, Greg Lemkul here, God, probably seven, eight years ago now. And and Greg, Adam, and I have a great partnership. And it's really, um, you know, we collectively work together. 
build the business strategy. Greg runs the company day to day. He's the CEO and it's his business. Adam and I really work with Greg on the capital raising kind of strategic role. We're co-executive chairman of the board. And we really kind of, you know, mutually agree and devise a strategy. And obviously given the M&A element, we've been somewhat opportunistic over the years, but we have a core kind of focus and plan, which Greg executes and run. And Adam and I spend a lot of our time on capital raising M&A. You know, a lot of these families at the time do build a race clips, very time intensive. Mm-hmm. We want Greg and Greg wants to run the company and deal with day to day. And we can spend the time, you know, nurturing those relationships, building that rapport and doing the diligence. <laughs> and then, you know, the lineage team, we actually have a, a team now of about 20 people who all they work on is M&A capital deployment. And so we work closely together with them on doing all that. Yeah, it sounds like a perfect way for everyone to be most functional because otherwise the tail wags the dogs. 100%. I can just say I have a phenomenal partnership with my partner, Adam, with Greg, with our whole executive team and, and the Baygrove team, and, you know, uh, other partners, Dave and Ed. I mean, mm-hmm. everyone understands their role, their focus. And that's that's really critical. The focus we have, I think, as an investor, Adam worked at KKR, which is a phenomenal firm. They've been actually a great partner of ours, too. But the ability to focus, mm-hmm. and not just in a single asset class in real estate, but in a single part of real estate, has really allowed us just to kind of build greater and greater knowledge. Yeah. So talk about this business. And talk about maybe it's the food service business or the frozen. What part is frozen? What part's not frozen? Yeah. And kind of talk through this to get a sense of size and scale. So if you think about the industry, I would say we play in the, you know, it's, it used to be called cold storage, frozen food warehouse. It's really temperature controlled. It's probably the broader term. And I would say 42 degrees and below is where you think you start needing specialized assets. If it's above that, you can put air conditioning in a traditional dry warehouse, maybe a little more insulation. But when you get below 42 and especially 32 and below, you know, you have to put uh, special floors in. Um, they have to have underfloor heating systems. Obviously, insulation has to be greater. There's all sorts of, you know, and then just the equipment to run the warehouse mm-hmm. and all that changes. So I, it's really 42 degrees and below, which is really the perishable world. Mm-hmm. So if you just think about your supermarket, for instance, is the easiest way I say I think about it. anything that's perishable. Interesting part about the perishable world is a lot of that stuff has, you know, maybe four days to three week, maybe four week shelf life, right? All the stuff in the perishable section. Prepared meals have become huge, obviously, all this kind of grab and go stuff. And then you have the frozen food section of the warehouse, which is obviously both the supermarket, but also restaurants. So we are that infrastructure. So our client base tends to be this consumer packaged good companies, the CPG companies, okay, the Nestle's, Tyson, Unilever, uh, Lamb Wesson and French fries. Think about anything that you would see in a freezer, whether that goes in a restaurant or supermarket. That's the core customer base. And then the retailers in the, you know, the the Kroger's, Safeways, Walmarts, Targets, who've, you know, they have their own infrastructure. They may use us for overflow. They may use us selectively in a region. They tend to have their own infrastructure. Some of those we actually manage also for them, but they tend to have their own stuff. And then the U.S. Foods and Cisco's, the food service companies who do more restaurant work, they have their own supply chains. And they also use us selectively in those customers just selectively, but they tend to have their own. So most of our 80% of our business is with that, you know, the consumer who, um, the company who, you know, I like to say, you get the strawberry, it comes out of the ground, you got to take it and freeze it. We provide that infrastructure. And then you got to turn it into ice cream or a smoothie or all this, uh, you know, you'd be amazed how many things a strawberry can turn into. And once they turn it into that, then they got to store that product before they sell it down the road. Talk about strawberry, because I'm curious. Yep. Strawberry comes, they take it and freeze it. You say you help with that. Correct. Then they do something with it. That's them, not you. Then you move it along down the supply chain. So talk about all that. Yeah. So, so the life of a strawberry is a fascinating one. So 80% 80% of strawberries in the U.S., believe it or not, are grown in Oxnard, Watsonville, and Santa Maria, up and down the coast. We have the right climates. And you'll find this with a lot of commodities around the world. We found out where they're best grown. Right. And so the efficiency of French fries in you know, central Washington, Idaho, is massive. It's like 80%, once again, same similar stat there, of a particular type we eat. And so that strawberry is frozen. Well, they send it to us. It comes off the field real time at like 75 degrees. We take it. We blast freeze it. So we... That's kind of a... You do that. We do that. We okay. blast. So blast freezing is a core service we provide. And it's it's really just storing it in the warehouse at a really cold temperature and th- throwing air at it. Mm-hmm. So that takes it from 70 to frozen. We then give that 
back to the customer. They may come and, um, you know, schmuckers, right? The guys make some jam and some other stuff. Okay. They'll, they'll take that strawberry and then they'll turn it into something else. And so they could turn it into... Wait, and when you get it from you to them, does right. it go on a truck and does it go on a frozen truck? Yep. Okay. That's great. So, and, and sometimes in the situation, we just freeze it in our warehouse. It stays there. They may have someplace we have a processor on site or next door. So they just, to your point, they truck it to their facility. They turn into that. So they could do it locally or they could actually, in the Smucker's case, they put it on a giant rail cars, some of which we now hope help own and manage. So... We've got into the supply chain management for them. Right. And they ship that back to Orville, and they turn that into a jam or maybe an encrustable sandwich for people who have young children. These are the hottest things. A, a frozen peanut butter and jelly sandwich that you throw in your kid's lunch pail, and by the middle of the day, it's defrosted and it's perfect. Uh-huh. P, B, and J. So they then turn that into an encrustable. That encrustable sandwich then goes to our distribution warehouses in Atlanta, Chicago, Allentown, Southern California to then be sold through the supply chain. So we joke that strawberry may touch 10 different warehouses in our network between you know, coming out of a field to being turned into a finished good that then is sold to a consumer. And that's not just moving the strawberry itself because I'm, I'm just repeating yes. what you said because it's just fascinating. Strawberry comes to you, you freeze it, you then send it back to them. So there's a transportation thing. Correct. Is it more efficient if you do more of the stuff in the same place that you have your thing? Yes. And I think in a perfect world, you locate all this stuff closer. And if you look at just generally speaking in the food supply chain and the logistics cost of that, two thirds is transportation, one third is warehousing. So, you know, clearly a big focus is consolidating all this so it can happen more together. But, you know, like anyone else in the world, there's these networks of production. You know, they've acquired companies. Right. They built, these are really expensive assets. So right. it's, you know, do you spend $100 million building a new plant with everything there or, you know, have an older asset you already own and make that work? And so a lot of this stuff just kind of depends. And in many cases, they're bringing four to five variables together. So it, it may be good for the strawberry, but bad for the peanut butter because that's, right. that's in Georgia. So how do you get the peanut butter and the strawberry together in uh, any event? And... You said the word perishable before versus frozen. Is perishable 42 and below, or that's above 42? Well, so a perishable generally is a very finite. Frozen is actually kind of funny because once it's frozen, let's just say the requirement is zero. It can be zero. It can be negative two, negative four, negative 10, negative 20. The food doesn't kind of care once it's frozen. So actually, our food can be a battery, which is another story we can talk about later. It can store energy, and you can super cool the food. So let the temperature go from zero to negative 10. And when power prices in California spike 300%, you can turn off our freezers and the product will hold temperature. And that's huge for the energy efficiency, which is a huge focus of us. So the strawberries are now powering the grid. The now, you're exactly right. The strawberries are now powering the grid. They store energy. It's a whole set of physics. We have a whole okay. data science team that spends a tremendous amount of time, has a bunch of patents studying this. So perishable we do, it tends to be, it needs, it's a much more finite temperature zone. Right. So it may want to be in two to three degree range to optimize. If you accidentally freeze a perishable item, it could screw up the food structure depending on what it is. So a lot of that product, if you start dealing with berries, you know, you think about my, my wife or anyone in my house, if they leave a strawberry out of our fridge, I, you know, start going into paralysis because I know that like the shelf life is, uh, you wonder why those, you know, berries get mold in your, in your fridge. It's, you know, someone probably left them out. They got a little warm and it accelerates the aging rapidly. So for a Driscoll strawberry, I mean, you want right. to get that stuff to shelf life, have the best shelf life possible. And then do the suppliers and your customers also have boxes or cereal that even though it doesn't have to be frozen, it would be too expensive for you to put it in a frozen right. place, they're still logisticking it around. So wouldn't they ask you to put it on the same truck sometimes? Like, do you, yep. does it spill over to the other goods and services? So... It can. I would say if it, this is when you start getting the nuance. I'd say the ninety percent, if you think about it, is even in, take Walmart because they're probably the easiest way to think about it, uh, or a Safeway. We make the food in our warehouses, in our distribution warehouse. We may have, you know, Nestle, Unilever, and Tyson, and they're all sending product to Walmart. Well, we can fill up one truck and send it to their DC. When Walmart distributes out, so they then distribute to their stores, and in that format, they generally have a perishable DC or mm. a frozen perishable and a dry DC. And so those are generally two different truckloads going to the, either they have such large scale. Now, if you're going to 7-Eleven, they're gonna actually have a tri-temp truck and they're just gonna kind of have a frozen section, 
a cooler section and a dry section, and they just may hang that, you know, some tarps because they're only going out for a few hours, and they deliver a rack of product. But, you know, the large retailers, they have enough demand. You know, they have a truck of cold and perishable. They have a dry truck going to their store or multiple dry trucks. Fair deals. Okay, talk about international. So how does this fit when you go to other countries, and is the story different? Yeah. So globally, at the end of the day, everyone eats. So we are starting from a common fundamental need, right? Yeah. The, the trickier part is, you know, the U.S., we are such a large, dense market. And if you think about where we exist, it's where population exists, so where people consume food, but also where it's produced. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. is a phenomenal market because there's a lot of food produced and distributed here. It's actually one of our last great exports is our mm-hmm. chicken, pork, and beef. And uh, we sell to the rest of the world. And besides our technology, one of the last things we quote-unquote manufacture. Mm-hmm. So the international world, when you start getting into Europe and Asia, those are different countries, different rule of law, um, but everyone still eats. And I would say probably half our customer base, you know, the large food companies are international. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the best practice and, and technology and scale in our, is able to leverage there. And so in Europe, where we have a really large, pre- we're the largest player, have a huge presence. Some of those markets kind of product moves, you know, easily through and other markets, it's more just a each country has its own supply chain, mm-hmm. but the, the skill, the technology, the infrastructure, the knowledge, and the scale still benefits there. You know, mm-hmm. the U.S. Is, is probably by probably the best market. Those become trickier because you get different rule of law and right. different languages, and so stuff crosses borders in Europe, but not the same way it does from California to Nevada. Uh-huh. And talk about seafood because I'm thinking of most of it's done on the ocean and they freeze it right then and there. And so just talk about that infrastructure as well. So seafood's a, a fun one. That's once again, it's kind of funny. You get in these spaces, that's like a generic term, you know. Right. If you go, we learned the business from the Alaska seafood trade, which is kind of, it's the bearing, that's a whole market. And that's, you know, there's probably 20 different types of crab. We just say, oh, it's crab. Well, there's a paleo, there's king crab. There's three different seasons of crabs. The deadliest catch boats, a lot of those product comes off those boats, comes to our warehouse in Seattle. Uh-huh. And historically, just the seafood market, the Alaskan one, and then you have the whole salmon trade. Right. And you've got 10 different types of salmon and salmon seasons also. But a lot of different types of seafood. Mm-hmm. Seattle used to be the market where it all consolidate. So maybe 20, 30% would leave from Alaska or Alaska region directly and go to Asia or Europe. Most of it would come to Seattle and then go across the world and be sold. That's just one type of you know, seafood. Right. And then there's obviously a lot of stuff in Asia that's grown. You know, you have the tilapia, you've got, you know, shrimp, you've got lot. I mean, there's all these different global seafoods and how they're mixed, sourced, and then distributed around the world is kind of unique. And a lot of the stuff we export, a lot of the stuff we actually import. And so ports for us have been a really critical part of our focus, again, to core industrial markets, chokeholds of commerce, ports is another area where we have some, you know, irreplaceable real estate. Yeah, it's interesting. You've Mm -hmm. been describing this across the board in terms of cold storage foods and what that means. At what point do you become a company and not a bunch of warehouses? And at what point do you become an industry player where you're the expert in this space and then value is created? In fact, additional marginal value is created. Just kind of talk about that going up that food chain. No no pun intended. Yeah, no, no, it's a great question. I think it's kind of funny because... When you come from an operating, call it the private equity side of the world, you always mm-hmm. think about stuff in operations, and we spend a lot of time talking about that. The irony in real estate, if you look at the evolution of real estate, it was owners, entrepreneurs, primarily families for thousands of years who just owned assets. Right. And they thought of it as, I own this building, I own this building. And to your point, no one, Blackstone's created this novel term called a platform. Uh-huh. I always joke, we just call that a company. Right. Um, they've been around forever. They, they run things. They develop talent. They make stuff. And so, you know, having a company allows you to take advantage. And, you know, I always found it interesting when we got in the space that no one really cared if whoever owned 555 California. I mean, maybe someone could operate a little better than the other, but it was still the asset value. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, in our business, I mean, two people can own the same asset, but they can run it better. They can make more money, create more value. So I think that was the first thing. Intellectually, you know, owning assets that work together well, they create massive synergies. The food space, you know, I guess in office and, and some of these other, you know, retail, I think you saw a synergy across Nordstrom's or maybe Simon had a relationship they could bring customers, no one could. You know, we can clearly do that. We can, because of our global relationship, 
we can take customers and have share business and do stuff that no one else could do. So we can create value and assets where someone else can't. So that's hugely valuable. I think the other comment and, and you know, spending time with Hamid and people in the dry space, and they're starting to understand this. I mean, Hamid's built one of the greatest real estate companies uh, or, mm-hmm. or in, in the real estate world. And I think, you know, if you hear them talking, as you mentioned, they're starting to provide value added services. Mm-hmm. That's the logistics business. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had an investor out the other day. I said, well, we have this great asset in the port of Oakland. We store all this product. That's how we make 70, 80% of our money. But if someone said you can get a truck for a hundred bucks and you can charge 300 bucks to take the product across the street, would you do that? Sounds like a pretty good ROI. Okay, right. I'll do that. And if the same guy says, by the way, my pallet just came off, can you shrink wrap it for me and count it and I'll pay another 20 bucks and that costs you five bucks. I'd do that, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I think, you know, you're hearing a lot of, I think they're realizing they have this massive scale. Can I help a customer buy forklifts and make a little bit more money? Sure, and it's, you know, it's interesting to watch that evolution. And I think, I know we go to customers and they're like, you know, life's gotten really complex. Scale's gotten really big. The more you can do for me, the better. Right. The challenge for us is it's all based on I have to have the product in the warehouse, and that's where I make a lot of my margin. But then can I add a few more things, get paid for that, and make a good return? The customer's stickier, and everyone's happier. And I think every every real estate asset class you're seeing that office, everyone's, hey, can I help you? You know, How do I do more? Make it right. stickier. So. I'm thinking of a forklift. I'm in a warehouse, and I have a quarter of a warehouse, and I have a forklift because I need it, but I only use it a quarter of a time. I'll pay double what I'm going to pay for the whole forklift to use half of it, but I only need a quarter still, so all of a sudden there's a margin there. It's huge. That's the story of our business. That's, I mean, that, that is the whole reason our industry exists, Matt. I think the most important thing with any business and any real estate is, do you need to exist? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, does it make, and the service you provide, does it add value, right? Mm-hmm. If those are true, then you should be able to create a great company around that. And people have to store and eat food. They have to distribute food. That all makes sense, right? Then the question is how they do it. And to your point, a lot of people, you know, I, we always joke, you know, turkeys, who wants to store turkeys, you know, from January, February, March? There's some demand, but not a huge demand. But come October, remember, like, warehouses fill up full of turkeys. Right. But if you're a turkey guy, you don't want to own a warehouse year-round because volumes may grow tenfold before Thanksgiving. So how are you able to offset that and rent the space seasonally as needed? Or, you know, a lot of guys, we have commit to a part of the volume, but not all the volume. So, mm-hmm. um, so talk about the company and what the company does and your website and materials say, hey, your goal is to build a truly great company. So right. I want to know what a great company means in this case. And we'll talk about the, the technologies and services offered, but also you've got a lot of people. Yep. And you got people at all levels, so yep. that's a different different dynamic. You also have environmental headwinds or dynamics associated with your business. So I want to kind of unwrap both of those. Sure. So I think for us, our thesis from day one is everyone asks, you know, you, you're trying to flip it, you're trying to build it to sell it, take a public, do it. And, and our comment and the mandate we've told our team is just build a great company. I mean, build something you're proud of that you want to own forever. And, you know, one of my mentors, a gentleman, um, Ron Burkle, I work for, had the same. That's the truth. If you think that way, you will build a great business. And the market loves great companies. I mean, I, I joke, you know, if someone said in and out was going public tomorrow, we would all go run crazy. and buy. Like, they've just created a great business, deliver great value, and they've never worried about going public or not. They just create a great company. So I think that mentality has been critical. And, and for us, to your point, a great company is having the best real estate in the best location. So for us, having the best warehouses in the best locations, mm-hmm. serving our customer. And I think you're right, we have 25,000 employees. So intellectual capital is absolutely critical. And so building the best team, developing talent. I think you know one of the great things about being in a niche asset class is most people don't wake up in the morning getting excited about you know building building cold storage, distributing food, running food around. So we're fortunate that we're in a niche sector and we love it and we get really excited and we can add a ton of value for our customers. And then you start layering on food safety, technology, all the other great things we do. Mm-hmm. And I think you know I'll flip to the other side of the world. I'll, I'll leave the real estate world and talk about this guy Warren Buffett, <laughs> pretty famous, pretty successful, and he talks about creating moats. And by doing that, you really create a moat because I think, you know, the first thing I say to most real estate people is you have 25,000 employees, their head explodes. I mean, they just Mm -hmm. couldn't imagine that. And that's a moat for us. I mean, the intellectual capital we've built with our people having the best warehouses and the best talent, that's a moat most people don't want to replicate. 
uh, or don't even know how to or can think how to replicate. Just back to real estate for just a moment, yep. because the real estate disappears in that you have a great company and the assets that you own may come trade in and out of that group. Do you sell assets as well as I would buy say and develop? for the most part, we don't. We, we, we've sold very few assets. And I'd say if we sold them, they were generally bought as part of portfolio and said, hey, they were either older, ironically, they were maybe dry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the whole, you know, um, they were dry assets that didn't fit our portfolio. But very infrequently, I would say generally we've acquired stuff. You know, we prune things from time to time, but I would say 95% of our time we've been acquirers and 5% of the times we've been sellers. Yeah, it's interesting because when I think about a real estate company, if I think of a collection of assets, then every asset matters. And if they sell up, there's a, uh-oh, what's that mean? But then when I think of Prologis or equity residential or digital realty, they're probably trading assets all the time. No one looks, they're, they're looking at whether the, the, the margins are getting better or the capitalization's getting better. But the company still continues. Yeah, I think as we get bigger and you just get bigger and more mature, the pruning makes more sense. As you look at different countries, different markets, you need to have the scale. So scale is important. But once you have scale, then I think we will go through a cycle over time where you prune different assets. They don't fit the core strategy. Maybe they are better owned by a regional operator or, or someone smaller. But I think that's always going to be a small piece. Generally speaking, the, the, the portfolio and company we've built, the assets make sense. That's why we bought them. Mm-hmm. They create value, and we can generally make more cash flow out of them than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And talk about environmental. How has that changed over these years? How's that changed in different international markets? Because there's different rules in Europe in particular that are more stringent. Yep. And what do you see the future? The first part of the environment is, if you just look at kind of where warehouses operate, we've had a few huge focus, especially with the data science team, we've actually won a number of awards for better plants. I mean, at the end of the day, our goal is to reduce our refrigeration footprint. And we've done a phenomenal job. We've committed to the 2040 Climate Pledge to having a zero carbon footprint. And I think, unlike most companies who do it by buying carbon credits or other stuff, we can do it by actually running warehouses more effectively. And it's it's amazing some of the technology that's happening right now uh, in warehouses and the ability, like I mentioned to you, you know, people think about not using energy. That's obviously in, in reducing energy, in which we've done tons and tons of stuff on that to reduce our energy footprint. We have high-speed roll-up doors. There's just a million things you can do, VFDs. What's VFD? Variable frequency drive. So your engines in your warehouses aren't running as hard all the time. But I think one of the simplest things you can do is, you know, now we have all these uh, solar and wind. So where, where peak energy prices used to be in the middle of the day, now they're not. And so we have this abundance of energy. So if we can suck down and use energy when it's going to go to waste, quote unquote, it's going to you know, rot. Right. And we can use that energy now because we can super cool our warehouse and use our food as a battery. That's creating a huge opportunity because the, the goal of the grid is not to create new production, not to use the dirty peakers, right? And if we can <laughs> suck that down and then we can use that power mm-hmm. when everyone else is, you know, cooling their homes at night, now we've created a huge asset for the grid. And so we actually have run a warehouse with a negative power bill for a month, which is pretty cool. So our, our, our cost centers become a profit center. And so there's a lot of stuff we can work with. And we're honestly probably one of the only heavy users of power. I mean, any other manufacturer, if you stop using power, you can't make a widget. We actually can keep our, you know, keep producing our product. So it's pretty unique that we can offer that uh-huh. to the grid. So we've had a huge focus on um, solar. We're the third largest, third or fourth largest rooftop solar player in the U.S. So we've had a huge commitment to solar. And the interesting thing there is, a lot of dry warehouses don't have the transformers. They don't actually have just the pure infrastructure to take advantage of that. We have that ability. So in California, there's a huge focus on you know electrifying trucks. So we actually have the electrical infrastructure to put those charging stations in place at our building. So that's really exciting. So I think there's a huge thing uh, on, on the um, environmental front that we're making a difference on and just the energy reduction, all this stuff. And it's, uh, it's really exciting. Our company's passionate about it. Uh-huh. Our employees are. And we want to make the world a better place. I and mean, that's a really core focus for us. It, and let me push back against that sure. for a second. Just yep. think of a couple different things. One is it feels like the climate footprint, the carbon footprint of America is so much higher than second or third world countries. Correct. And we're now exporting, in your concept, more frozen food stuff to people who don't have freezers yet. So if I think of the future for a lot of the globe, Will they not be using this? Will it be used in warehouses but not in the home? 
are they then buying the American lifestyle, which is ultimately carbon intensive? So it, it's, a, it's a really good question. I mean, I think this is a little bit, and I don't, I don't have some of these, all these answers. Yeah, of of it's kind of like the Tesla. Oh, you're saving all this energy, but now you got to produce the battery here and the car here and mine this and do that, right? Mm -hmm. There's a real efficiency to doing stuff in scale in certain location, right? If you say, where's stuff most efficiently grown? Well, now you're, theoretically, you're using the least amount of inputs because it's grown. And if you look at food production, it's really taking water, and energy and turning it in. I mean, that's why everyone says, you know, beef versus pork versus um, poultry versus fish, what's the most efficient transfer of energy? Mm -hmm. And beef is obviously the most complex. You have the methane issue. So there is some nuance to that, but if you're gonna do it and people are gonna consume it, right. there is a benefit to, to finding the most efficient place to turn that and to leverage that. And then the debate then is, okay, now you have to transport this stuff around the world. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the extreme other answer is India, where like 40% of food's just wasted because they can't get it out of the fields, there's not proper infrastructure, there's not proper storage, and then people go hungry and die, that's not the best, that's kind of the other extreme, right? Yep. So I think if, and obviously we're in California and place that's kind of cutting edge, I think the answer to all this is somewhere in between at some level, like really believe in local, but there still, to make sure stuff doesn't rot, you gotta put it in your fridge. Right. I mean, there is a, there is a refrigeration element and energy use that balances the best of both those worlds. And I think you do. It's interesting. So the, last, the next question I was going to ask you was this word you might hate, which is farm to table. But it's an and, not, yeah. a, not an or. Yeah. So you got to do both. And I think that's what I would tell you if you think about the world again. It's kind of like this whole clean energy thing. If you look at all the, the energy companies, the Chevron's like, we should be the best in however you're consuming your food, if that's where the world goes. Right. First of all, you still need, we do a lot of farm to table stuff. It comes through our warehouses locally, right? right. I mean, that stuff still needs to consolidate, be distributed out. I mean, you can only feed so much, so many people with a local garden, right. and, and you know, not everyone's just going to eat out of local. I mean, there's going to be the need for proteins and other pieces that get added to those meals or meal kits or consumption. So, and then there's a supply chain that needs to be created there. So, I think our core competency and value, we will contribute to build that. And the reality is, a lot of the country doesn't have the time or energy for that. Uh, and I think Dr. Oz, I'll, I'll leave you the really interesting comment. The, the healthiest and most efficient way to feed the poor inner cities is through frozen food. So if you freeze that organic strawberry, mm -hmm. it's a frozen organic strawberry. It's the healthiest preservative, right? There's no, there's no passion, there's no other preservatives or sugars or salts. It's just a frozen organic strawberry. Right. And so that is actually the healthy, and arguably when you freeze it, that's healthier than five days later when you eat that organic strawberry at home fresh. Mm -hmm. So that frozen strawberry is the healthiest way to feed the lower income, lower class, and it's the most cost effective. Mm -hmm. So if you really get to it, frozen food is the healthiest, cheapest way. And if you freeze in that organic, you know, Amy's Kitchens thing, it's still that organic thing. So you, you lock in whatever natural state it's in. Fair deal. You mentioned your data science team several times. Mm -hmm. what, what does data science team in your business do? The answer is a little bit of everything. Uh -huh. So we've got a team, and, and I, we have a data science team. We also have just our general operational and technology. Siddharthan Tatai, our CIO, helps run all that with a gentleman, Elliot Wolf, who sits downstairs. But we had a thesis that there's a lot in supply chain logistics. And I think being in the Bay Area, leveraging technology is huge. And they've really been on the cutting edge of just making sure every problem, we're thinking about it from a technology and how do we optimize, how do we automate, how do we use algorithms. So they brought data center algorithms to how we store a product in our warehouse. Hmm. And the old warehousing 101 was slow movers in the back, fast movers in the front. Everyone's kind of, that's kind of mm -hmm. common knowledge for everything in life. And, but my back to my turkey, a turkey around Thanksgiving is a really fast mover. In January, it could sit around for six or nine months. So you don't want, so knowing when to put that product there and writing the algorithm and understand, or maybe on Tuesdays, you know, strawberry and jellies, I mean, strawberry and peanut butter goes together. So making those two commodities. Mm -hmm. So the data science teams thinks about our most complicated problems, solves them, and, and really thinks revolutionize, revolutionizing our industry. And they're just a fascinating group. And like I said, um, we've attracted people from Apple and Google and, you know, people with their PhDs in physics. And they come from a, a gentleman who works with NASA. They're solving, I mean, this is one of the most rewarding and exciting things. I bet. And so there's a real passion uh, around, around reducing food waste and optimizing supply chain. I'm on the board of a group called uh, ExtraFood.org, which is a nonprofit in Marin County that tries to eliminate food waste in Marin County. 
where it's the one of the wealthiest counties in the country, but we have 20% of the people in Marin are food insecure. And if we could take that food waste and get them to those people, huge huge upside plus it helps the atmosphere the uh, carbon as well and you're spot on so in the emerging world 30 percent of food waste happens in the field in the developed world 30 percent of waste happens you know after it's been produced to your point right. whether it's at stores or restaurants and we're actually with the lineage foundation for good that is one of our core passions so we work with customers now say hey you have all this food about to go out of date cold right that you're gonna have to spend money destroying Right. Or we can try to give it to a foundation or work with a food bank. And so we're doing a ton of work around that. And it's once again, that's the kind of stuff that gets people excited. That's correct. Uh, makes them passionate. We're going to pick that conversation up later. Okay. We're going to have about five minutes to talk about your life, which isn't Great. fair. You went to Duke. Yes. And you were the manager of the Duke basketball team under Coach Kate. Talk about that and what that means for you today. What, what the ripples are for that had to be fascinating. Yeah. Coach, he's obviously one of the greatest basketball, arguably the greatest college in potentially basketball coach there's been, but he's even a more amazing leader. And I think uh -huh. a lot of that's come out. And I learned a lot in the X's and O's, but he's been a mentor and a friend my entire life. But how I saw him develop, manage people, I mean, his ability, to, if you think of all from the 80s winning championships to, to now and the players, how they change, and he was able to evolve and change. You know, his mentor was Bobby Knight, didn't have the same success kind of evolving, but coach just being an amazing leader, a person, and the skills you, he taught there are you know, they kind of work in any industry or any business. Gosh, you're lucky. And how did you get that job while in college? What was it that distinguished you to be the MJ of <laughs> the business side? I thought I wanted to be a college basketball coach. I went to a, a big sports high school, De La Salle High School, and played on a, a great championship team and uh -huh. broke my ankle my senior year and realized I wasn't going to play. That probably was, you know, that was for a lot of reasons, but uh, right. that helped realize that. And uh, But coaching, so they get a great academic school and, one, and obviously the best basketball program. And Steve Lavin, who was a coach at UCLA, I, I had known for years, and he kind of called up coach that I got a great one here for you. And uh, coach uh, and, and Quinn Snyder, who was actually there at the time, um, uh -huh. who was the coach of the Utah Jazz, took a bet on me. And um, you know, uh, it was just a just a phenomenal experience. Oh, it's great. And we're going to skip a couple jobs. So, yep. but just mention briefly the roles he had. You were Morgan Stanley, and then you work with Ron Burkle. Just talk about that, and then how you and Adam came together. Yeah, I guess the the quick fun story at Morgan Stanley. Um, John Mack, um, who's also been a mentor and investor, he was CEO of Morgan Stanley. Right, he's a big Duke guy. So I met him because I used to have to. One of my jobs was taking um, CEOs and and large benefactors for tours. And so John's like, you know, what are you doing after school? I told him I want to get into banking. He's like, well, I'd really. So he got a couple of us internships and, and got us at Morgan Stanley and um, Gordon Dean and Mark Bradley were great mentors. So it was in the sponsor coverage M&A group there. And then once you work for Ron at Ukaipa, who's a fascinating entrepreneur, built some amazing companies, including Fred Myers, Smith and Smitty's, which is the Kroger West Coast business, and just a great owner entrepreneur. And Adam and I worked together at Morgan Stanley. He then went to go work for uh, KKR and the George Roberts in the West Coast office here. Uh -huh. And so we both had the thesis to come together. And long term, we wanted to create great long term platforms. We didn't want to build some giant private equity firm. While we really enjoyed our experiences at Yukaipa and KKR, and, and George has actually been a great mentor to Adam and, and myself and an investor. I mean, We've been fortunate to have these just great right. partners who just bestowed their wisdom and supported us. We just wanted to create a business and have a smaller infrastructure. And that's what we felt we enjoyed more. Because once you create a big company, now you're spending a lot of time managing people and not you know, investing. And uh, we just really enjoyed the investing, bu business building part of. And you got to do that because you have the CEO for lineage. So therefore, you can still keep your eye on the ball that you and Adam wanted to do in the first place. Yeah. And it's, I mean... Greg, uh, everyone jokes like, you know, well, you guys are young. Don't you want to be CEO one day? And Adam was CEO for half a minute before we were able to get Greg. And I think we both recognize the talent. I mean, Greg is so far superior. The talent he has and what he can do, we we could never do. I mean, just such a different skill set. Right. His ability to build and organize and create structure and, and mentor. I mean, he's any of it. It's just a different skill structure. And I think we see this a lot in business and sports and anywhere else. You know, just because you're a great player doesn't mean you're a great coach. Just because you're a great talent. And I think we realize our talent it's different than Greg's, and that's why we have such a great partnership. And how do you and Adam split up what you do? What's what's your yin and his yang? You know, we clearly have both our different strengths. Adam can do anything. I, I'm probably more 
Um, we split the world from an M&A standpoint. He's done a lot of the European stuff. I've done a lot of Asia. And then the U.S., you know, it's kind of who's got bandwidth. You know, there's we uh, are pretty active in transactions. And so with our junior team, who's become really senior, and our other partners, we've kind of split up the M&A. And I would say, you know, I've done more financing. He's done more tax and structuring. And obviously capital raising, again, We've got a lot of investors. We kind of split it up, and mm-hmm. depending on who's got bandwidth at the time, we we go back and forth. And um, you know, I'm lucky uh, talking to a lot of people to have had such a great partnership here going on 15 years. I just with Adam and now kind of with Greg, but uh, it's just been amazing. Yeah, and you've dived so deep into this business, and your goal was to do multiple platforms. Will there be multiple platforms? You never say never. I think for the next five, ten, or even maybe twenty years, we see there's just a still a huge opportunity. And and the kind of fun part now is that you have the size and scale, mm-hmm. and you're really good at it. One of our early investors was a gentleman, Jeff Ubbin, who runs Value Act Capital, and he mm-hmm. said the greatest companies are people spending all their time in one industry. They're reasonably smart, and they've made all the mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so they hope if they're reasonably smart that they make the mistake once or twice, but no more. Right. And once you've done that, you become really efficient. So whether it's coming to capital allocation, doing a deal, you just have that native sense. So we have that in the industry. And then also, candidly, we're able to create value for the customer. We're able mm-hmm. to do stuff that we can see, and, and that's fun, too, because at the end of the day, you know, if you can create value for the customer or the partner, you can buy assets right you can really do well. It's interesting. Uh, one of the more recent podcasts was with Ross Perot Jr. Mm-hmm. And we talked about the evolution of his business. And at each point of evolution, he his eyes lit up and he talked about the learning curve. And each time he learned a new thing, he created a business around that to bring that learning into the marketplace. Yep. And that's what I experienced talking to him. I'm experiencing the same thing talking to you because each corner you come to in this business, you discover there's more... There's more deeper to go. He's one of the great. I like the, the industrial space is definitely, you know, the world we kind of play in, even though we're right. 10% of that market. So I look at, you know, Hamid's and Ross, and they're just talent, talented and brilliant people. But you're exactly right. I mean, because um, in many times in business, it's not only what you do, it's what you don't do. Mm-hmm. And I like, you know, we buy these companies and everyone goes, oh, the owner, he's not involved anymore. I'm like, he may not be in the warehouse. Some of them are. By the right. way, they can tell you every employee's name and where stuff is. Some of the guys, they sit up top, but they've been they've done it for fifty years, right. and it's the five things they decide not to do that year. Don't right. waste time on that customer. Don't waste time in that commodity. It doesn't make sense. Those don't build a building there because you're gonna have X Y Z problem or change that refrigeration around. And they do that in one hour, right? But it saved thousands of hours of work, right? And that's what people I think you know learn sitting back in the seat. That's really valuable. And so we really try to keep that intellectual capital because when there's a tough question, it's nice to go back to, you know, Tom who ran the business and go, we're thinking about this. What would you do? Mm-hmm. And it may go, well, here's why it didn't work for me. Now, maybe technology is different, so it may work. Or, no, that customer, they'll never gonna, they're never going to work because they're always – they'll tell you one thing and, and they'll do ten other things. So – that wisdom is really, really valuable. Yeah, totally true. Last question on leading voices is always advice for a young person getting into the real estate business. So I actually heard a great, I guess, YouTube thing on Bill Gurley. Uh-huh. And I think I like a lot, likes of the wisdom. He said, it's just learn and be deep in knowledge. You know, his kind of comment was, with the internet, information is readily available. So you can learn and be an expert pretty quickly in almost any industry. Now, you may not have the practical experience, mm-hmm. but you can learn a lot about any industry online. So you know you have to first find your passion. And then but once you do that, just learn and be extremely knowledgeable because that's pretty unique. You know, A long time ago, the knowledge wasn't available. But if you want to learn about industrial real estate or cold storage or data centers, you can learn a lot right now in a really short amount of time. So if you have a passion, learn deeply, and I think that'll just create opportunities. It's interesting. I think people wonder where that passion will be. I don't think you thought your passion would wind up being in cold storage. But it's really true because you go, okay, how am I going to find it? I think it's random, the thing that you wind up finding. Now, your genius was to find this space and then drill down. But then once you find that space... Then you develop the passion around it, is my belief, versus I'm, I'm in my inner nature, I'm going to be a cold storage human being. That's not true. I think there are some people who early on find that in, uh, I thought, medical. sports yeah, sp- yeah. or medical. They, they find that. And to your point, I think a lot of other people, 
success at intellectual curiosity begets a, if this asset class didn't perform, you know, would you love it as much? I don't know. I think you're right. You, a lot of times, and that was the case for my partner and I, we developed a real respect for the people, for the industry. And then we just found you know, intellectual curiosity. And I think the fun part for us is we're global, we're in technology, we're in people. I go to a lot of industry conferences. I mean, I can, you'd be amazed, you know, next week they have the global poultry show in Atlanta. I mean, there's like 20,000 people, maybe actually, maybe it's 50,000 who come down on Atlanta and talk about everything about building, you know, uh, chicken chicken coops to right. freezing the chicken and selling it around the world. And any event, it's a, it's a great space to be in and enjoy the time here today, Matt. Totally, thank you. I really appreciate it. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leadingvoices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.